This is mutual. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. And with this week's theme from Sharon B., I'm Jack Ward, and this is Mutual Presents. We continue with the final day of MadCon 2021 virtual and our second session, Breaking It Down. I host this amazing panel with Lothar Tuppen, Ellie Madlin, and the immortal John Scott Valentine. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jack Ward from the Sonic Society, Electric Vicuna Productions, can't even say my own company right, and the Mutual Audio Network. Welcome to MadCon 2021 on Sunday. Thank you so much for coming to this session, Breaking It Down. And uh, I will start with my panelists, and it doesn't matter how many times I introduce him, I will continue doing so until the end times. He is the writer, producer, storyteller, editor, director, and actor from Ninth Tower Productions, The Amigos Collective, Broken Sea Audio, Electric Vicuna Productions, and he's also a fiction writer, an editor, and most of all, audio auteur. That was one of his fans who pointed that out, not just me, he is Lothar Tuppen. Good morning, brother. Thank you. Now I need to leave because I can't live up to that. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's wonderful, Jack. Next, we have Foley Artist for over 80 productions in Chicagoland with life with companies, including Red Orchid Theater, Theater of Western Springs, Lifeline Theater, Oak Park Festival Theater, and the Second City Training Center she is and was the Foley designer in residence for Locked Into Vacancy Entertainment and Wild Claw Theater's Death Scribe, a guest lecturer on stage Foley's for University, one heck of an actor, I can say personal, I think, and my personal vote for changing the term Foley, which is used in movies, to Ellie's because our sound effects predate cinema, Ellie Maitland. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Almost forgot to mention one of my favorite people in the audio drama world too. And last, but certainly in no way least, the esteemed audio drama heavyweight, the man who raises all boats with his phenomenal love for the medium and his own company, Campfire Radio Theater, now into the decades old, writer, producer, lover of CBC Nightfall, and the Wes Craven of modern audio drama, John Scott Ballantyne. Welcome, sir. I was looking behind me. I just was. <laughs> Is this a crew of horror nerds, incidentally? Is that what we have this morning? Yeah. Guilty yes, we charged. Yes. Excellent. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and maybe we can talk uh, based on that too, as well, as we get deeper into the stuff. I have a few notes, but every time I have a few bullet points to talk about, it seems to very easily expand everything that needs to be said, because this is a really large conversation, because what we're talking about now and what we've moved into Sunday is the post-production side of things. We've done the writing, we've done the editing, We've done the acting and the recording and the casting, of course, to get to the actors in the first place and the directing and all those elements. And now the information needs to come from all of those people over to the post-production, the editors uh, side of the world. So the first thing we're talking about is breaking down a script from the writer's ideas to what an actor needs, to what a producer needs, to, to what you guys need. So my first question is, what is different about how a production or post-production person looks at a script compared to the other people, to the other various different roles? Let's start off because Ellie is, is nodding furiously the most. So we'll start off with you. <laughs> oh goodness, I was just trying to look engaged. Well, um, thank you for that. <laughs> engaged. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like um, one of the biggest differences uh, I've recognized also when, if we're going to be talking about uh, Foley for film versus Foley for uh, audio theater is that film folks rarely, if ever, look at a script. And so the uh, post-production team, their focus is mostly going to be on like maybe they'll go through that and see like what additional paperwork folks have. Um, as far as like notes for levels and for uh, intentions on certain parts of the storytelling, but they've got they've got all the Legos, and so they're going to be putting them in. Uh, they're going to be building the castle with it. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very cool, and and that terrifies me personally. Like I I I the one thing I dislike the most and I'm glad I'm here because I want to sort of push myself away from that dislike and it gets less and less dislike as it becomes easier and easier to do is the post production. Cuz the more I sit down with the post production the more I go, damn it, I want to be writing. Like why am I not writing? Why am I doing this? Why am I cleaning lines? Why am I adding sound effects? Why do I have to move this stupid little thing over here? So, um that's and and um having you here Ellie because I, I know a lot of this stuff is done live so yes. um, there's a lot of interesting and, and one of the things that I was listening to in one of the previous things is there's you either do all the work up front or you do all the work afterwards right that's the it's probably a little play. bit of both because one of the other things uh when we've got post-production if we're going to be releasing a live show after the fact like most likely we're just going to have those board recordings which means none of the effects that we were using in tech for the live performance are going to be there. And so that's going to be another one of those things that we're reverse engineering. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and that's one of my favorite parts. I feel like I learned the most as a live practitioner when I'm sitting with a uh, much more qualified uh, dear friend sound engineer uh, working all of this through because I am hearing from the board what of my performance really read and also helping him with uh, discerning what is nuanced based on what the levels were and what they are now, if everything's kind of at a more baseline. Be like, no, you need the 
of the lighter to be uh, much quieter and he'll be like, oh, there's a lighter. And so like little things like that, that may not necessarily be obvious, especially if he's only looked at a script that didn't have like my red thready conspiracy theory quality uh, notation all over it. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I can imagine Ellie's rooms are all set up with thread everywhere. That's great. I have another question about that later. I want to get off to John and hear his thoughts on this particular question and then to Lothar. What do you think, John? What's the difference between reading a script as a writer? Now you do all your stuff yourself. So do you, are you able to take off and put on different hats or is it all the same thing for you? Yeah, I mean, I I guess I'm, I'm probably one of the few people that like enjoys every part of the process. I, I enjoy writing, I sort of get in that mode. And then I'm like, well, it's time to cast folks now. Well, it's, it's time to, you know, look at sound design. Uh, okay, now it's time to start putting all these pieces together. And it's all kind of like a geeky little joy for me to, to approach each one. But, uh, you know, truthfully, when I get into post-production, I almost, I mean, I know the script generally pretty well because I've written it. And even if I haven't written it from scratch, I've adapted it, you know, from another piece of work. So I know it pretty well. Um, I throw it out the window and just start listening to the performances and listening to what effects I have and trying, you know, try to figure out, okay, how can I make this work as a, as a sound piece rather than a, a written piece? Not that you're not looking at that when you write it as well, but, you know, once you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, um, different thoughts occur to you that you weren't thinking about when you were writing it. And you think, oh, this is a better way to do this. It sounds better. Um, so I, I, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Um, no, it does. And I, I want, I want you to expand a little bit. Do you make notations on your script by hand after like, so that when you're going along, you might want to make an extra notation about the post-production that you hadn't written originally, or do you make changes as you go along just so that you have a historical understanding of things, or is this all happening in, in your head after you've written it? I used to, when I used to actually print them out, I, I hardly ever print them out anymore, you know, there, and most of the writing programs will allow you to insert little notes here or there. Obviously you can make changes as you go, but um, as far as the history of the changes, what, what revisions are made, I, I don't really, you know, make a lot of notes on that or, or save any of that for posterity or, or whatever. It just kind of, you know, whatever the final thing becomes, that's what it is, and you know. Okay, Lothar, what's your take on this? Because some, very much like you, like John, a lot of this stuff is controlled by you. You do a lot yeah. of it. Although and you did you did a phenomenal job on on my script recently in the release, and so that was a whole different experience that you can maybe speak to as to how you do that too. So yeah, and um, I also have a another interesting thing, which again I work mostly satellite post production stuff. Well, a couple of years ago, Jeff Billard was doing a live production of Fahrenheit 451, and he used to ask Bill Holwig to do the sound design. He asked me to do it. I had to do sound design that would be sent to a live stage to be used and come at it from the point of view of how I would normally do things in a satellite stuff. And what I got from Jeff was a copy of the script and a list of the sound effects. So I, that was you know what Ellie was talking about where it's like, I just had a list of sound effects and all that. I used the script to get context, to get more of a deeper, like how am I gonna make the style work? 
I, I, you know, I send some emails off to, to Jeff to say, hey, what sort of tone are you taking? Is this going to, you know, how are you taking this so I can make the sound effects as creepy as you want or as this or that as you want? And it worked really well, but it was a fascinating experience because that was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. I'd love to do it again. It was a blast. And uh, according to Jeff, it went off okay. I was too bad. I would have loved to have flown out there and seen it out in Boston, but that wasn't going to be in the cards. Um, when it comes to scripts, uh, if it's my own, I make production notes up front because as I'm writing it, I'm sort of seeing it in my own head and I'm putting that down so I don't forget anything for myself because I know I'm going to be the one mixing it. Um, and as I'm typing that out, I kind of think through, ah, no, I don't want that transit or maybe I don't want this point of view. So it's, it's almost like if you're writing prose and you're coming up with your style of narration, well, instead of narrating all the non-dialogue parts through narration and propositional speech, we're doing it through sound effects, through the soundscape, through the panning. And so as I'm writing the script, I'm coming up with what I'm going to finally be doing. So it's very contiguous. But again, like we've said over this whole you know, convention, a script is a blueprint. So when I get into the final mixing, I'm like, no, I need to tweak this a bit. I've got a better idea. Oh my God, that isn't working at all. Um, I'll either make notes in the script uh, which I do print out because I like to, uh, when I record, I like to have paper with reflective light. It's just easier for me and, and it's, it works better than digital. Um, so I will make notes there. Or uh, if I'm really in the middle of the mixing process, I will use a, uh, that comment track that most DAWs have to where you can put little notes in there. And I'll say at this particular time point, start a transition or footsteps panning from here to here. And I'll time it in with the dialogue as I'm placing the dialogue. So when I come in and add more sound effects, I'll be able to go, that's my note of, I want it to be here and I know I can end here and it'll be the rhythm of the scene, um, bringing all that in. So it's a little of everything because it is an organic process with me. When I was working with you on your script for Right Number Wrong Party, um, your script was very clear and uh, anything that I had any questions about, I'd just send you an email. And most often it's like, hey, do what you want, brother. It's your, you know, you're, the, you're the director, do it, you're the producer. And um, you were really great that way. And I just you know, cleared a few things with you and then was able to, to go to town with it. Yeah, I've, I've had people come back to me and, and say, like, I wouldn't have done this on that final release of your production. Uh, and I always say, I once I let it go to the producer, I will have notes about things that I think they went like totally south on. But I, I want people to put their own stamp of their own production on my things. So I look at that as, for example, Ellie and I have been waiting and I'm rich. Don't take offense to this, but rich has been busy with all sorts of stuff. And he's the producer for market crash, which has been out for like three years to, for us to be doing now. Rich came to it later. Remember that show that you did oh, with yeah. Owen McEwen? A simpler time. Yeah. And, yeah. And Owen McEwen and, and they've been wonderful at not bugging me about it. But the point of the matter is, is that um, this is Rich's production of that and I've had other people take my scripts and make their own version of that what if I ever decide to do it myself and produce it then it will be my version of my script but I'm I you have to be able to let things go to a certain degree and let people do their artistry and that's where I, what I think is important I, I could be completely wrong but Elio if I can jump in on that for a second just uh in anticipation of uh, the future where in-person workshops and things like that, you know, are a reality. Um, I, there's a, a Meisner uh, exercise slash joke that everyone's pretty familiar with now uh, as uh, that's basically the trick is to emphasize different words in a sentence. Like I never said you broke the lamp. Uh, 
I never said you broke the lamp. I never, and just seeing how that changes the intentionality going into a scene. And I think it'd be really fun to have uh, one script that is broadly interpretable and have like four different groups tackle it and see what their interpretation dictates of the story, which can be uh, mostly out of probably sound mixing perspective shift, like where the, the camera is supposed to be on any particular part of the action. I think stuff like that is really cool. I yeah. also wanted to jump back on the, the paper trail conversation because uh, in performance, I always work off of paper copies, uh, most practically because you don't want any more electronics around your, your soup and your water uh, than you already have because of the mics and everything. But also like uh, I am a big devotee to my day jobs office scanner because that means that I have permanent versions of all those documents. So they're not MacGuffins that I have to worry about losing at some point. And it's also really invaluable for me because one of my favorite things um, as an opportunity for live production is to do remounts of things because that means I get to revisit and uh, uh, and re-experience the dance that was the original production and also bring what it is I have learned as a performer and as a designer back to it uh, as a, as a uh, in a later incarnation of that production or performance. Wonderful. So for me, paper trail is invaluable for what I do and why. And I, I was going to come back to you with a question because I, I love that. And I I'm, you know I want to do live shows and I want to lean on your experience and, and expertise on, on the sound effects, especially in the live show thing. Um, I don't know if you've seen pictures. My father made me what I'm calling the magic box. And it's, it's, it's filled with... Um, drawers i could probably find a picture at some point and put it up for people to see and it's pretty cool he broke it in half so i can actually fit it in my car too yes, so i can yes. hook it together and it's got like a phone attached to it and i can open it up and there's places for sound effects and that's what i wanted because I, I think the sound effects is such a an opportunity as being like an a, almost like a character on stage my my question however for you though is how much practice because like I, I said earlier or was suggested earlier is that you you spend a lot of time earlier on being prepared or you spend a lot of time on the back end so a lot of post-production I know John and, and Lothar can speak to this is cleaning up lines and doing all that stuff that you couldn't get done on the on the front end maybe it was a dirty recording or something like that but when you're doing something live how much rehearsal do you have to do to work with people to make sure, because timing is everything. I get so engaged with the actors. Sometimes I'm almost too late with my, with my sound effects and it's a stress for me when I'm doing that. So can you speak to that a little? You're, it's basically like you just offered me the one ring. Do not let me Ted talk about this for the next hour. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a great question and it's a very rich question because so much of it is dependent on uh, like how much time you have. Parkinson's law is uh, that the amount of work that you have will expand to take the amount of time you have to do it. Um, and I think I probably mentioned earlier that during my tenure with Wildclaw, I was kind I kind of shoehorned myself in as the apprentice to the pre-existing Foley talent. Um, but we had very different uh, interests and investments in how to make that happen. They were pretty much just uh putting everything together the weekend before the performance and being like all right we got it let's go and that, part of that was also because roughly 60 percent of the uh sound effects were pre-recorded 
And then, you know, upstart little me is like, why would we uh, compromise the quality and ambitions of such an awesome and rich way of telling stories like this? Another one of the practical things about this was Describe was always the first Monday in December, but we had the scripts selected by mid-August. So I'm sitting here going, what? We have these. We can be thinking about these and experimenting with them and dreaming about them this whole time. And they're like, we, we got other shit to do. I've been online. And, I mean, I've been doing live shows and I will 100% back the idea that I would much rather have practical special effects for a live show. I believe that sound effects that come in electronically or sound like confuse the audience more than anything else. They like mm -hmm. to see it happen right in front of them. It's part of the magic of the show. It's 100%. Yeah, the, um, the ideas of complicity and closure are really important for performance theory in, in Foley for the audience. Complicity is they want the story to work. And you, you say a thing, you make a noise, the audience wants to understand that's uh, connected in some way. That also brings us to the idea of closure, uh, which if any of you are comic book nerds as well, may recognize from uh, the from Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. Wonderful the book. Idea of, Wonderful book. Yeah. Being that the comprehension of the movement in the narrative comes in the gutter between panels. So you see a, a silhouette in the shower, you see a knife, you see a dead body, you're the one that is making that story make sense, which in a way also interestingly makes you complicit in the murder of that character. So shame yeah. on you. <laughs> I love that. So, so um, and also this is a cumulative kind of uh, discipline where uh, there are a lot of things that I would have done differently when I was first starting out, partially because I didn't, uh, I was not fighting back on like what we could or should be doing practically. And so when I'm revisiting those scripts years later, I can say, oh, I know how to do this now. I'm excited about this. Or, oh, I know a better way to do this now. I'm excited about this. And that's right. where experimentation is really a big part of your uh, opportunities and toolbox as well. So time is your biggest resource as an artist. If Absolutely. you're thinking about these things, if you're exploring these things, if you're just wandering around a toy store or a hardware store or a grocery store and just like tapping on shit, because yeah. that's how I learned <laughs> a lot of things that I'm very excited about. Right. Um, uh, get to that later as yeah, well. Yeah, no, that's good. And I, I love that. I want to move on to John because I have a question. Um, I have a couple of questions for you, John, but this is the thing is I start with a couple of things. I'm like, oh no, I got to talk to him about this. So, mm -hmm. but first of all, this is something that everybody can talk to, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. If I can what steal one, 30 more seconds for another soundbite uh, when okay. it comes to time in the room versus putting things together at the last minute and the ongoing conversation we have about how in a live show, the Foley artist steals the show or is the most interesting thing to watch and things like that. That is not something to rely on or depend on because um, art without depth is craft. Craft without skill is stick. Stick without charm is desperation. Wow. That's, so uh, I'm going to have to sit and think about all of that. That's something I'm going to replay on when I'm listening to this because I like that. And, and, but Ellie brings up an, one of my important points that I wanted to bring into the conversation. And I, I want to take it to you, John, because we're just going in a circle at this point. No, nothing against Lothar's thought because I know he's got a good one for it too. Um, what's the difference between a sound effect of what people expect something to sound like and a sound effect that is much more effective at portraying what the sound is in the story? 
Does that make sense? Yeah. I'll give you an example. Some people sit there and they think, well, I'll just use a regular gun firing off as a gun sound effect. But that may not really sound like what people expect a gun should sound like. Do you find that a difficulty when you're producing and creating sound? Yeah, I, you know, it's not really a difficult thing. You really just have to play to the expectation of the listener for what the sound in their mind should sound like. Because like you say, if you use a real gunshot, they may be sitting there saying, what was that? You know, what, you know, um, I always like to use the example of, uh, I've got one of those big ice cream scoopy things. It's got the little trigger on it. So you can just scoop up the ice cream and it comes out in your cone or cup or whatever you're putting the ice cream in. And it's like Ellie is saying, you start, if you start playing around with little objects, the sound designer in you starts to, oh, this sounds like that. To me, that sounds like the ice cream scoop sounds like somebody chambering around in a gun. Now I can take an actual pistol and chamber around in it and it sounds okay, but that ice cream scoop to me sounds more like the, you know, what I expect it to sound like. And you always go for, in my opinion, go for what the audience expects, or at least what I expect for that sound effect to, to uh, represent. Um, I guess that's my thought on that. But I, yeah, go for the audience's expectation. I think you'll win every time. I think you're right in the, in the, in the idea that um, if, if, if an audience has an expectation for a sound, you are doing that much better as a job of not confusing them by the sound, right? So you want to make things as easy as possible. Ellie's got her phone. Right. There you go. Or were you thinking, go ahead. Yeah, I feel like um, it's it's always going to be pick your battles. Like 90% of the time, if you uh, have a bipedal humanoid character walking, that's going to mean footwear of some kind. But that's also something that you can be playing with the, the audience about too, the sense of play and helping them along with the story so they understand when something isn't necessarily what they would expect is part of our responsibility as storytellers. The idea of sound is a big part of design elements, making anything, everything larger than life. Like, because the reason why Foley was uh, appropriated into cinema, and I say appropriated because this was all disciplines that were familiar already through uh, radio theater and the silent film vaudeville circuit before that and commedia dell'arte before that a lot of these disciplines have been eating each other over time and still filling the same need for an audience gunshots for example specifically are one of the biggest struggles in uh historically in radio storytelling we get the expression go in like gangbusters because that was a uh, radio theater that had the most satisfying gunfire in it and so all the other producers were like we want that sound go in like gangbusters <laughs> right that right thing that no one actually remembers the the origins of anymore so yeah um, i love gangbusters it's a fun show um, two things when i'm yeah. lecturing with kids that i always like to uh, start with the first is a video of what is considered what is called cooning which is uh the singing that they do in iceland to call cattle down from this from the mountaintops and so there's this video on YouTube of this woman dressed like Galadriel, and she's just using these high ringing tones and the cows are coming down to the mountain and it's beautiful and ethereal and magical. 
the other one is of a dude who's at the bottom of a mountain and he's got a, a like a 12 liter or whatever of shasta and he downs the whole thing opens a little prayer hymnal and then belches <laughs> loudly and cacophonously and sure enough the cattle are all like what <laughs> down from the mountaintop <laughs> so your that. story may just say something happens sonically to make this happen and right. so that's how broad a palette we have to play with very cool very cool lothar our uh, good friend stevie k farnaby made it made a name for himself by building yeah. all of his sound effects and From then Saturday. destroying them all of the sound them again after he created them. But before we get off onto anything, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you're talking about because we're getting into one of my favorite subjects, which is semiotics. The difference between a sign and a symbol. Let's break it down because we could talk about semiotics. I mean, Percy and semiotics experts don't understand him because he was writing his whole theories on opium. But anyway, <laughs> um, the basic thing that I'm bringing out of semiotics here is the difference between a sign and a symbol. If I have a stop sign, it represents you need to stop here. It is just that. If I have a stop sign with a certain shadow over it, and maybe the sun is setting, and you get an emotional feeling, and it's representing something deeper of maybe there's something more portentous. We've moved into the realm of symbolism. And specifically semiotic symbolism, which is a little bit different than Jungian symbolism, it's an it's an iterative loop that keeps feeding back in on itself. So when we have the gunshot that is more booming, that doesn't sound like a real gunshot because you fire a real gun and it's very unimpressive, you're dealing in the realm of symbol and everybody brings that to it. What does that gunshot mean to them? Maybe in real life, maybe they actually had PTSD because they were in a drive-by and that's where it's going to take them. Maybe it's going to be like, wow, I've always enjoyed action movies and this is bringing me that same joy we deal in the realm of symbolism. So when we deal with crickets to represent nighttime, we're entering the symbol of night. All those sorts of things, um, the types of footsteps, the when, when we deal with pacing, even certain things like when there's music in a show and we cut it abruptly, that's its own type of symbolism of like that needle scratching, something's breaking. This is where I think when we're writing, if we're writing for audio and when we're post-producing, we need to get in this mind state. This is where we're going to bring this, that aesthetic world to life by understanding that theory and moving it into praxis. Nice. And it, uh, your discussions about infrasound also bump into that as well, oh, because that helps right. create elements of symbolism right. and stuff like that that's involved. Yeah. I'm reminded really to- liminal frequencies that actually scientific uh, studies have said they do have effects and you can weave those into your thing to where it's like, it's really hard to do a true test. I mean, you know, need a laboratory and a bunch of control groups and everything. And even then you'd have a subjective element that would be really hard to prove anything. But when you get acousticians saying, hey, this frequency at this level causes people to feel really bad, you can embed that into your soundscape to just bump up the creepiness a little bit or weave it into a sound effect that comes in bring in music theory to where you're going to bring in a tritone you can use certain effects to go okay what is what is jack ward's dominant uh dominant pitch in his voice right now you're not singing but you're still got a dominant pitch in your talk i'm going to have a monster attack you and if i pitch shift that creature to where your scream and that attack has a tritone element of the devil, devil's interval, it'll make it that much more creepy to it. So add that stuff in. Use your little musical knowledge uh, just to be dangerous enough to be creepy. <laughs> wow. And I want to talk about music too. And I'll bring that back to John as one of my other questions. But 
Another interesting thing that I always am fascinated is the amount of times in movies you or or in music or, what, or not music so much, but commercials where you see it, the record skip sound effect and how many people nowadays even know like what, what that means have listened to vinyl, but they know what that hey, means. vinyl's back vinyls right. back, baby. And everybody's got a DJ. Everybody hears the, the needle scratch. Yes. But that particular skip and scratch usually is like a stop moment for everything that's going on. Right. It's used comedically for that reason. And, and it has been for decades and it's kind of like stuck in people's head that way. But, you know, Lothar brought up the dreaded question or the dreaded point about music, John, because this is one of the things that you don't do by yourself you have a partnership do you want to speak to the conversations because we're talking about breaking it down script wise the conversations that you have uh with your musician partner to be able to do the music that you do for campfire radio theater and again congratulations on your 10th that's awesome oh thank you thank you thank you very much um yeah yeah kevin's become kevin hartnell has become a an integral part of the of the podcast and usually uh, I have discussions with him sometimes even before the script is finished and, and I'll say hey you know I'm thinking about a theme for this creepy little girl or whatever the case may be you know maybe think about that and usually he's and once the script is delivered he, he really has a pretty good idea of where I'm going with things at this point so he'll start, uh, you know, he'll start working at it. And uh, by the time I'm ready for post-production, he's got some, some pretty good stuff lined up, really excellent, brilliant stuff. So, you know, we have discussions about, you know, and sometimes I'll have very specific ideas about what I want musically. And I'll say, hey, you know, maybe try this or try that. He'll, he'll come away with something you know, much more brilliant than anything that I've thought of. And, and I always tell him, I mean, I, you deliver this stuff to me. It's like Christmas, you know, it's, I, I love, you know, the stuff that you're doing. Um, so we have those discussions and he just, usually I find a lot like the voice actors, you know, you, you give him the room to do what he does and he's going to deliver something for you probably much better than you would imagine. Now, have there ever been some missteps where you got a miscommunication? You say, well, that's not actually the tone I'm looking for, or, or, or I'm, I'm looking for something a little faster or slower. Have you had that conversation too? Not really, because as a general rule at this point, he, he will come up with ideas. He'll deliver those to me. And then by the time I have sort of a rough cut of the show, I'll send it his way and he'll actually start composing stuff specifically for each scene and uh we're pretty well dialed in i think at this point as to he kind of knows what i'm looking for a lot of times even before i i tell him so um yeah he he just he, he's an excellent guy to work with and he's he's uh he's uh, post-producing a couple episodes at this point himself um and you know he'll deliver those to me and I'll listen and I'm like, well, you know, maybe pick up the pace here or change this. But, um, you know, we're, we're usually on the same page with, with things at, at this point. Excellent. So theme, mood and uh, transitional music. Is there anything that I'm missing that he tries to put in there? Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't um, 
I, you know, I don't think so. He, um, you know, Kevin is a big fan of, of sort of the eighties style scent, uh, music. And I think that works so well for horror. You know, you think about all the great eighties horror films and they have that, that vibe. You even go back to something like, you know, our, you know, one of our personal favorite, uh, Radio dramas is Nightfall from the CBC back in the early 80s. And they had that synth kind of sound to them. And uh, late 70s, early 80s sound. Um, so we've kind of taken advantage of that with a lot of our shows. And he does that better than anybody else that I know of. Um, even, even shows like, you know, Stranger Things and other shows have brought back that older style of horror scent, you know, kind of sound. And um, there's a whole subcategory of music right now called that, Retro yeah. Wave that's doing that. Mm -hmm. no. I also want to jump it's in very popular. Yeah. Yeah. give a shout out to uh, Wellington Paranormal, uh, which is available on HBO Max now. It's a um, horror comedy by the same folks that did What We Do in the Shadows. And the oh, wow. uh, score is all John Carpenter piano style stuff. And it's delicious. That's awesome. Well, I want to move towards you, Ellie, and maybe you can tell me how how is music used effectively in live performances? Do you find Ooh. that you have a live uh, performer doing the music for that reason? When I'm lucky, yeah. The two big associations I have are uh, Describe had a full band, the Describe Orchestra, and then uh, Locked in the Vacancy always had at least a keyboardist. Uh, playing and the differences are interesting just as far as the the, the emotional intent that we we're going for um, and ev every story is going to be different but more often than not the the music in described pieces would be diegetic uh, meaning they had like a practical story based source while there would be a lot more interstitial and underscoring uh, musical elements in the comedy pieces that we were working on Interesting. So, I don't know if anyone has like additional um, things to add. I think probably the uh, the live quality of it and lent itself more to a cinematic sparseness in maintaining the integrity of horror for us. Right. But I mean, I, I also have a lot of experience with horror audio drama that is like scored throughout and it, it works beautifully. Right. And I would say brother uh, Lothar that, that Bill, absolutely operated from the cinematographic side of audio drama and loved to layer his music yeah. very much he, in there and would use a bunch of different things. And I think that you've sort of picked up on that as well, being a songwriter and a musician yourself. There's there very is little, I know just enough to be bad, um, <laughs> but yeah, Bill did some really cool stuff. He, he did some things that broke the D like it started diegetic and then it would move into weird transitions and come back and transition something else and bring you right back in again that I loved. But Ellie's mention of diegetic is really important because I think that when you're first conceptualizing your audio drama, when you're thinking about what sort of, you know, approach do I want to take? What type of way do I want to tell it? Thinking about that. So for like sort of the Crimson Tatters, I had the, I wanted to emulate the old heavy metal magazine uh, stories by Mobius specifically the ones with no dialogue that were very surrealistic and weird. And so how could I do that in audio? So I made weird soundscape musical things that were in the background, almost omnipresent. And that was a conscious choice. With She Wolves Prowl the Promised Land, I specifically, I want to have a lot of music. It's all going to be diegetic. It's all going to be playing through a radio or 
somewhere in there. There's not going to be anything that is non-diegetic because that's part of the whole radios, CB radios, rock and roll 70s sort of feel. Um, and that was very conscious up front. So even in the scripting process, I knew I wanted to do that up front and that went into my writing. And that made it easier because I could already see the feel of how I wanted to do it. It's kind of a Quinn Martin production meets a faster pussycat kill kill, you know, sort of thing and uh, go from there. And then it tweaks and it turns into something different. So I think even knowing that up front can help the writing process instead of in the back end, if that's going to be a major narrative component of your of your story. If it's yeah. going to be straightforward, it's not as necessary. Yeah, I, I consider like She-Wolves, which you're working on right now, I'm reminded of Tarantino and how he comes with a, a soundtrack already that he's built in his head before he even starts yeah. writing in that respect. I don't have that budget, so I've got a yeah. few four <laughs> fives and I found some. Uh, Kevin McLeod and Incompetech has a... Um, fake rock band called glory nugget so you can do a search for glory nugget on incompetech and you'll find these like sort of like 70s garage band fuzz rock tracks and so like in some of the opening ones the dj's turn off and now we've got such and such by glory nugget and then i can play that you know and, and not have to worry about licensing and things like that so all of a sudden well, glory nuggets a uh, rock band in my fictional world that's awesome. Uh, well, he, you said the dreaded word, and that'll bring us up to the next thing. So John Scott Valentine, please tell us, um, he talked about tracks. How do you go about breaking down the script into tracks? Do you have a set number of tracks that you like to work with? How do you, do you break them down into scenes? Do you break each? Uh, you're, you, do you use Reaper? Is that what you use? Actually, I still use uh, Audacity. Uh, there now, you just made Lothar your best friend forever. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you know, I, I learned on Audacity. I, I mean, I've got uh, Audition, I've got Reaper. Uh, I've tried to. I mean, so many people are big fans of Reaper, and, and I've tried to work. I've worked with it a little bit, but if I really want to start working on a show, I I, I just start Audacity because I know it like the back of my hand at this point. I've got all the plugins on there. The you know the Isotope plugins work with it. I mean, it's a glitchy sometimes, but it, it it works pretty good. I'm used to working with it, um, so that's what I use. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it is a destructive program, but you just learn to work with it. You, you make a decision and, and, and you save backups. Uh, Explain to people who don't know what you mean by destructive, because I want to be well, as clear as possible. If you use Reaper uh, or some of the other programs, you can go back, uh, certainly, I guess, Pro Tools, you can go back and at any point, go back to what you were originally doing. Uh, once you save something on Audacity, you can't undo it. If, I mean, you can undo it if you're still in the session. Once you've logged out, you turn your computer off, you're done. You know, you're saved at that, at that position, unless you've saved a backup somewhere. Um, so I try to save backups in case I want to go back to to uh, something that, that that I did originally. Um, so, so so there's ways to work with it. Uh, it's just not as endlessly uh, uh, flexible as something like like Reaper. So do you work session? Each session is like do you start with one scene, a session, and how do you how do you set it up in Audacity? 
each track is different for each person? How, how what's the landscape of your setup? In the I, I start off with uh, I, 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 the first couple episodes, I tried to do um, the whole episode uh, in one in one file. And I found, well, it crashed. The, the, long, the longer the, uh, you know, 30 minutes, 35 minutes, whatever, the longer the file, uh, the more chances you have it's going to crash. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to just do one scene and use however many tracks I need. If it's 20, that's cool. If it's 50, you know, that's cool or more. Um, uh, you know, as far as, uh, you know, I, I put each in a remote uh situation where you are a satellite actor situation you know you, you put uh each track is a, is a is a voice um you know and i i put i i put them in a each uh each voice with uh i guess technically two tracks but it's it, i i put it in stereo and uh that way you can pan them around wherever you want them in the spectrum um uh and there's there's really no I mean they used to say uh, you couldn't you know you could you could only do so many tracks I, I've done 50 60 70 tracks in Audacity with with no problem as long as your computer can handle it the program will handle it. Um, you have a Windows or a Mac computer? I have a Windows uh, okay. computer, um, and it's not all that great. I, I could ha definitely do with a faster computer, but. Uh, yeah, it works. Audacity is one of those things that I know it gets a lot of knocks. People people are hard on it, but you know, if you know it, you can create some really good professional sounding stuff. Yeah. And it's gotten so much better over the years. Yeah, it really has. Um, the noise reduction in Audacity is pretty darn good. Yeah, it's gotten really good. Until I started uh, playing around with the isotope stuff. That that the noise reduction in that is phenomenal. It's like I just bought, I just bought Isotope RX last night after all the recommendations for it. Oh yeah, you're gonna love that because it will do things that I I'm like, holy crap! It it took that out of the out of the background. Um, just things that you don't normally think that 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 that's gonna work. You, you can take a because I've yeah. My voice actors generally do a great job sending me stuff with no background noise, with no issues. But occasionally you'll get somebody that, you know, maybe had some issues recording or whatever. And uh, the, the isotope stuff is uh, is phenomenal. It's a godsend to, to audio drama uh, post-production, really, when it comes right down to it. And, and I want to do a little modification to Ellie, but I'll get Lothar's response to that because he also brought up his beloved audacity for that reason. And I, I, I do you start off the same way? Do you use uh, a single scene? Is that what you work yeah, on? Yeah, because um, the only person I know who does full episodes uh, was Stevie K. Farnaby. He would do a whole episode in one big file because he had a huge he had a professional setup for doing audio mixing for I music. I think he was using Pro Tools too, wasn't he? He was using Pro Tools. He was using like heavy duty. He had all the equipment. He had the, he had the, he had the memory, the hard drive space, everything he could do it. And he liked to see whole episodes as one big thing. I don't know anybody else who has that kind of setup or maybe even the way to do it. I like to do it scene by scene. I'll do as many tracks as I need. Um, and you know, you start off with just the initial voices and the sound bed. And then maybe I'll go like, oh, 
there needs to be some echo. Well, the way I like to do echo is to make a copy of the main track, add the echo, raise the volumes until they mix right. And so I've got double tracks there. I also like to make sure that even if I'm panning a person and they're moving, let's say, um, far left, but there's echo, I want the echo to be center panned all over the place so that it's not only feeling like it's hitting all the different areas of the room as best as I can with my limited ability to make that fully 3D, but also because then if someone does have hard of hearing in their right ear and I'm moving pan left in their headset, they can still hear some of the voice and it doesn't get cut off, but we still get the dynamic panning there. So I've got double tracks there. If I've got a scene that's five minutes long and four of the minutes of it is gonna be pretty centered, but that first minute he's moving around a bit or she's moving around a bit, I'm gonna make double tracks of that audio so that when I'm panning, I can be dynamic and have my little panning stuff going on. And then the other main track, I can just keep centered and not have to worry about where I'm setting and panning it and all that. So I can do multiple things that way. And so I, I can have as many tracks as need be and layer it as deep as, as I want. So Ellie, thank you. Ellie, this is my variation because your experience is so varied in live performance. I, I just want to keep plucking at your ideas on this. One of my concerns is as layered as you can get with post-production, you are limited by the number of hands and or knees or whatever you need to create sound effects at the time. Is there a recommendation about how many sound effects people you should have on a stage for a really developed and, and, and full sounding live performance? It's, uh, it's always going to depend on the story that you're telling and how you can best preserve the integrity of that uh, playwright and director's vision. Um, in general, uh, with Locked in the Vacancy, I am a sole practitioner. Uh, in general, with Describe, it's me and one other person. Uh, I typically like to have a, a partner with a lower voice than I have. So we have uh, an expanded tool set in that regard, in case we're ever doing any sort of multi-voice effects. Um, but the ability to deputize is always one of your biggest assets when you're in any sort of position of power as well. Recognizing who has skills that complement yours or uh, when you can trust someone with uh, lower level technique or capabilities. Um, which isn't to say that I don't frequently ask for help from the band. If we're creating a soundscape together, um, one of the better sequences we had in, in the past couple of years was uh, a drowning where someone was completely submerged and was uh, going progressively lower and lower into the ocean. And so we were employing the guitarist's um, uh, strings, like detuned guitar strings, to help give us that kind of weird cagey kind of like cool kind of quality, juxtaposed with my big ass rain stick with a contact mic on the bottom of it. So you were getting that tumbling, cascading kind of submerged quality. Um, and also someone's on a prayer bowl. Uh, so, and that's also juxtaposed with uh, a chamois cloth being uh, used to, as a uh, heartbeat and the vocals of the actor who's struggling and giving us gurgling noises. While we've also got someone uh, with a um, plunger in a bucket of water. And the, my first experience at the Foley table, even though I had been you know, stalking this discipline for a couple of years at that point, was uh, back in the day when they were doing uh, some pre-recorded sounds as well, they had me on stage pressing the go button 
So, I mean, I was dressed to the nines. I looked good doing it, but I felt dumb doing it. <laughs> but they had one of their more ambitious pieces that needed a, a third pair of hands. And rather than say, I'm scared, I'll do it badly. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got to do some singing glassware. And so again, like finding people that are game to try, recognizing when maybe you need to pare things down based on their skill set or their understanding of rhythm or of just tone. Uh, but I'll also say, I can't do a water drop. It seems like one of those classic basic things that was so integral to uh, uh, fun kind of designs like in Prairie Home Companion, Fred Newman is a genius when it comes to all of the mouth sounds. One, ever, one out of every 200 times for me is that perfect round water droplet. The rest of the time is just me smacking myself in the face. So if I've got an actor that knows how to do that, then suddenly they have another job. And the main reason why we had uh, these delineations and responsibilities back in the day when uh, it was actually being done in radio studios more often than not were also union constraints. And so if we're in this woodgy kind of environment where no one's getting equity scale for anything, then you're also, uh, you have a lot more uh, goodwill and curiosity at your disposal. And that might be also where your next Foley artist discovers and falls in love with this discipline. For sure. I'm, I'm wondering if you've uh, engaged the audience to do sound effects too, because the problem with that, of course, is you suddenly take them out of it, right? Because they're listening to do something as opposed to being engaged in it in the same way. It is way. a budgeting way of investing their and your time. It is a really good point. Um, so in the event that I do have audience members involved in things, I usually try to keep them super short um, I might have, like, if it's an ensemble sound, I might have groups one through five, so no one's doing all the heavy lifting all the time. They can actually enjoy the story some, but it is also another way of getting them emotionally invested in things because they're a part of things. Another right. one of the companies that I belong to here in Chicago that is not audio drama affiliated, but is, you know, traditional theatricality um, is the house theater. And the reason why they call themselves the house is because the audience is what completes the, uh, their house as a theater because nothing works without an audience there to enjoy and be that third, that final member of the cast of the ensemble. And so when you're getting the audience invested in a way where they're like, I'm part of the storytelling, then that's also going to be working in your favor, but you do definitely pick your battles on that. Um, right. I'll also say that aesthetically, more often than not, I will be one of those designers that will do big establishing soundscape slow fade into a couple of iconic recurring sounds that fill, that help with the scene and maintain the environment, but aren't necessarily the focus because we're also there to uh, make the world bigger and more intriguing for the characters that are inhabiting it. For sure. Unless it's I know something Andrew Sachs did. Before I started any of this audio drama stuff, I began with a one man, one act play and I did it in a church and I gave script lines of to three different people in the congregation with the head of so where they know to do it and it was memories that this person was having and they would come from different parts of the stuff so I tried to utilize a little bit of that without even knowing it in one way or another um just in the chat I found the group where I put the magic box pictures so you can have a quick look at those at some point when we're talking Excellent. Another uh, interesting thing. I should also thing. mention that a looper pedal is your friend. Sorry, what was that? 
before I get too far away, a looper pedal is also your friend. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's describe <laughs> that to somebody for people who don't know. Oh, um, it's a mechanism uh, usually used in rock bands where you uh, have a button for starting recording, you do your thing, you stop recording, and then you can press another button and it'll continue playing that section on a loop. So if you wanted to build a more in-depth environment and people were busy, that might be another way of keeping things uh, more um, uh, expressive or dynamic because uh, right. you can also take it away when you need to add different layers when you want to, depending on the complexity of the pedal yeah, itself. You might really like the looper pedal. Um, I knew a guy who was a um, acoustic classical and flamenco guitarist, and traditionally you need someone holding down the rhythm while you solo. So he would play the rhythm and then do that for a little while. And then when he's ready to solo, the looper pedal keeps playing what he just played and he can solo over his own stuff. So you being yeah. a busker, just thought I'd throw that out there. I have, I have seen that involved for sure. So John, all of this talk about live theater, has this intrigued you enough to do a, a show for uh, Campfire Theater Live at some point? Like sometime like 2022 MadCon, when we have a theater, just, just a thought, just, just, just coming out there. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would love to do a, a live show because a lot of our, especially our local actors are, are you know, from the theater stage background. And I've considered it a few times, but it's just it, it's outside of my, I guess, normal disciplines. And, you know, I, I would I would probably have to turn it over to somebody else and let them them do their thing. Somebody like Ellie or, or somebody who is experienced with, with doing stage productions and, and just say, hey, you know, here's an idea. Um, here's a story. Uh, if I can help put it together, let me know. But um, you know that that would be probably the extent of my involvement, but I, I would love to to see one of our shows done done on stage. Wow! I just got told that my my link doesn't work. I don't know why it doesn't work because I just grabbed it straight from my the the things. So, I, any anyone know? Let me see. Is there a way? It might be something that you only have access to as uh, the person logged in that owns the photo. Yeah, it, it tells oh. me I must log in to see. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let me see if I can. I, I, you can't copy images and drop them into here, I suppose. Well, one it, way to find yeah. out. Let's one way to find out. Let's see. No, it's not. You can coming. always download it to your oh. computer and then upload it to. There, there is a little YouTube. button to the right of two, which says file. You might be able to upload a file to that. Yeah. To the right of. Uh, down below at the chat pull your chat up and then where it says you're about to type something in and it has a, you know, like two panelists and attendees to the right of that is a button that says file. Oh, okay. It's a, yeah, it's a, I have a thing that says Google drive, your computer, all that stuff. That's it, I guess. Eh? So yeah, that's where the files are coming in. I'll have to, yeah. I'll have to uh, put those together and, and, uh, and, and do with that. I don't want to take away from what we're doing in the conversation. Um, uh, uh, and I'll never have a chance to mention this during a session before, so I apologize for taking extra time to do this, but I think you might find this interesting, Ellie. As a high school teacher, we would have um, high school um, theater stuff going on. So every uh, May, they would have all the high schools would come and do theater. And the drama teacher there decided, because of my love for radio drama, he wanted to do live radio drama on, on stage with his kids. And they wrote their own the script. They have to, right, for this particular thing. 
And what was kind of cool was they decided to do the entire presentation live with the curtains closed. And so everybody was listening to it. And then at the end, when the applause came, they opened the curtains and turned on the lights and everybody was like, oh, I was totally picturing this or something like that. And it was a massive hit. And the next year, everybody was doing live audio drama for that. So that was, I was, I had very little to do with it other than they, I get been talking about it and doing it in school for very much. And it just was a really proud moment for me to see how excited everybody was and how it, it's there and nobody utilizes it into the same degree whatsoever. What kind of, um, what kind of liberties do you get to take as, as a post producer when you're creating shows based upon breaking this stuff down from the actor's performance the script's performance, the director's performance, because it all comes down to you in the end. Lothar, is, is, there, is this a responsibility that, that weighs heavily on somebody when you're doing somebody else's script or, um, or, or other people's performances? Do you ever find I, those are I like, issues? I guess I just like to get clear up front if I'm going to work with someone. Like uh, one of the first uh, things that I did with Broken Sea was the uh, Planet of the Apes UK stage show recreation that... Bill was a big Planet of the Apes fan. He found the people who had originally written the stage show that was originally done at rodeos in England for a kid's audience. And he got the rights to the scripts to do the audio adaptation of it. And so I cleared with him and the principal owners through him. If I do this like a, because I was thinking like, I'm seeing it as like a 70s sci-fi uh, sort of 2001 silent running, that sort of feel of... Um, that type of 70s show and a little bit darker. And they said, yeah, go for it. So I wanted to check with them. Are you okay with my approach to this? And then they were very happy. Um, and same thing with, with you, with the liberties I wanted to take, I just cleared it with you. I think that communication, I have my own voice, but I'm also there to make your story come to life. And there's gotta be a way that we can do that together. There's lots of different ways I can have my voice and it can still work in a way that doesn't make you unhappy. So I think just doing that when it comes to takes, if they've given me a take and I pick one of them, I figure they've given me a license because otherwise they wouldn't have sent me that take. If I ask for a retake, um, you know, right. then, then we're talking about why. And, you know, again, we've talked about that over the weekend, but usually I try and use what they've sent me because they did it for a reason. And maybe I should figure out what that is before I say it's wrong. And you're on mute, Jack. I know, I know, um, because I'm, I'm, I, I, I had my cat meowing in the background, so I didn't want sure to cause issues. <laughs> but so, has this been a problem? Cats. Because when you're breaking this stuff down and you're putting it all together, sometimes things just don't fit, right? So, I'm talking specifically about acting. How difficult is it, John, to ask for other people to do retakes? Is that is that something you find? a challenge and challenge getting back, especially when you're dealing with satellite actors who kind of sometimes think it's one and done and they're done kind of thing. Have you had to recast and everything? I mean, other than me, you should have gotten rid of me. I was terrible. I apologize. I don't know why you say that, Jack. You were, you were great in that episode. You, oh, I mean, you went even went as far because you were, you know, a patient at a, you know, a dentist office and what did you did you fill your mouth with galls at one point? Because you got to walk out of the office after having this uh, basically laser lobotomy, I guess is what the in that old episode of Nightfall that we adapted. Um, 
with Bill Gray's permission, thankfully, uh, let us use his his story. Um, but uh, no, I, I thought you were great in that. But um, I, I wasn't fishing. I really want to know specifically. <laughs> thank you, though. But I wasn't fishing. I, I really want to know specifically how difficult it is getting people's retakes for things. And and are there times you get stuff up and you're like, this just doesn't work? Uh, that happens very rarely. I, I don't like to. Casting is so important and I think it's underrated. I mean, if you get the right people that you know you can depend on. I mean, Tanya's been in several of these panels uh, last night. You know, she's great. I watched the actors panel yesterday with Tanya and Joe and, and Joe Stofko and, and John Bell. And I'm thinking that's a great all-star group there to, to get act, voice acting advice from. Um, those guys are great. And I don't know that I've ever had to ask uh, Joe will actually send you stuff and say, Hey, what do you think about this? Can I change this? Do you want me to, you know, and he'll, and, you know, I might say, Hey, you know, modify this a little bit, maybe, you know, do this a little slower, whatever the case may be. Um, but you have those people that are so open to, to doing retakes. You don't mind asking them to, to do something a little differently. Um, I try to, but I, I do try to avoid it. If, if I can make it work, I will, because these guys are not, um, they're not getting paid. Uh, I try to make it as easy for them as possible. It's all voluntary. Um, so, I, you know, I, I just try to make it work as much as possible. But, but if you work with good people, they want to sound good. So your ultimate purpose is to make the show sound good. So, um, and, and they're always open to do, to do retake. So it, it's never been a problem, uh, but I, I do try to avoid it. If, if I can figure out a way, if there's a line that just doesn't sound right, a lot of lines are throwaway lines. They're there for pacing or, or whatever. And, but if it's an important line and needs to be said a certain way, yeah, maybe you'll ask them to do a retake, uh, do something, you know, uh, send you something else. And I've never had any problem with anybody saying, Hey, you know, I'll be glad to get it to you fairly quickly. You know, that's wonderful. I just want to shout Jack, out. I've got it. Thanks, Jack. I've got Great. a story about your um, uh, some lines that you gave me that actually gave me more. And I was able to do more with it and how some of the stuff from the actors, it's about you, but this is in general, it's happened with other people too, where I now have more creativity because of how the actors gave me their lines. There was one line where Jack had a sort of evil sorcerer character play and he wasn't sure whether I wanted a gravelly voice or a high pitched evil voice. And so he did both. And in the scene, he was a sorcerer that had shapeshifted or projected his mind into a hawk. And he was going to start talking from the hawk. And I'm like, oh my God, I can take a hawk cry, merge that into his high-pitched voice, crossfade that into his gravelly voice. And now I've got a audio shape-shifting thing going on. Never would have thought of that if you hadn't given me two different types because you weren't really sure what to do. I'm that very I uncomfortable with people talking like, yes! about me. I just want to point that out. I'm very uncomfortable with people talking about me. So, but uh, thank you. I, I really, this is not the Jack Ward's hour. I really, but uh, is, but no, I, I think those, the, the, the points that you make are really quite good. And I'm, I just wanted to shout out to Sarah Golding, who's been here and thank right you on. so much as well as everyone else who's great. Um, so that's awesome. And here I was waiting for you to tell me some horror stories, Lothar, yep. of stuff that you I, I think one of the reasons I've mitigated horror stories in my personal experience 
is because of the production notes I put in. And we've talked about that. And I don't know if you heard a story I was telling in one of Jeff's panels yesterday. There's a filmmaker named uh, Rodrigo Gudino, which um, Ellie, you might be aware of. He owns a Rumorg magazine out of Canada. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. At one point, he when he finally gave over the editor-in-chief reigns of the magazine, he wanted to make movies. And his very first horror film, he got one of the Redgrave sisters to do one day for a budget. And when he said, thank you so much. I never expected someone like you. How can you make this work? And she looked at him and goes, the reason why I decided to sign on is because of all your production notes in your script. I knew what the final product was going to be. I like your vision. I think this is a show I can be in. If it was just a straight script, she probably would have turned it down as another beginning stupid movie by another beginning director. And it worked out well. And this also ties in a little bit. Another story I was telling was about Terrence Malick. He's a director that is wide renowned, but he's also notoriously known for actors going, I never would have been in your movie if I knew that that's the way you were gonna do the script because it is so different from the shooting script when he goes into post. I think when you give appropriate notes, you, they can see the film going off in their mind, the mind of the film of their audio going on in their head, they give a better performance and I haven't had to ask for retakes because they understand the context. I you know, cast people hopefully appropriately and I've never really had a horror show and retakes have been pretty minor. It sounds like one of the most important things that I'm taking from both of you is communicating your needs and with specificity and care to your collaborators. And, and, so and collaborating with them, listening to their ideas. Yeah, but also yeah. like deadlines, tell folks what you need and when. Like I had an experience as a voice actor of, of maybe a year ago where something that had been in the can, like the director just drops into my DMs and says, hey, I need a, t uh, a take from you on, on this uh, bit of dialogue. Um, can you get that to me? And I write back, uh, when do you need it by? Because I'm at a day job, I'm going straight into rehearsal and that's gonna be my life for the next couple of days. So, um, and his response is ASAP. And this might just be me being traumatized from a, uh, 20 years in corporate America, but ASAP does not tell you anything. Because ASAP might mean five o'clock, which means I'm supposed to try to find somewhere in a supply closet that's quiet enough that I can record these lines. Or ASAP might mean next Wednesday, which means I can go home, chill, turn on Audacity and do a couple of takes. Big mm -hmm. difference. So make sure people know what you need and by when you need it. That's Absolutely. really important. Thank you so much for that. I, I, I know uh, uh, Jeff is, is listening, but as, as somebody who does do acting, I, I, I love direction. I want the more direction possible. I know he would say, just let people do it. But to me, that terrifies me because I have too many options. I, my brain is too many options. Like, so if you sit there and you say, look, I'm looking for a bit of like a bogey versus a this, you know, like if, if you can pull something that he does in African queen, or, or queen or, and, and utilize this, it gives me a ballpark to move from. And I had that same problem in high school. When I was in high school, uh, a teacher would ask a question. I wouldn't put up my hand because I could see 30,000 different answers depending upon what they were looking for. So that was my biggest issues for that reason. Um, Ellie, one thing I wanted to bring up sort of tangentially to this kind of thing is, do you have problems at times with actors on stage not giving your sound effects time to breathe or jumping over top of those things because they're not used to that? And that's, that's, that's a spacing issue that we'll talk about with John and Lothar too, but it's a live problem, right? 
Bless you. That's a great question. And it's another one of the things that indicates that your biggest and best resource is time. And that's one of the reasons why I like to be in the room with them from first rehearsal. One of the best bits of advice I ever got when it comes to explaining fully to uh, your voice talent is make room for the sound, but don't wait for the sound because we are there to support their experience uh, for their characters and uh, illustrate their world. So most of the time, if you know that cricket doesn't happen, it's not the end of the world, the story should move forward. The exceptions will always be plot-based rather than story-based. Hedda has to get shot before the play gets to be over. So they'll, uh, with that in mind, there is probably gonna be a bit more grace and understanding for what is filling the world and how they're uh, interacting with your soundscape. One of the other things that's important for me as a sound designer in the room with them, I might start out just reading the sound effects to them as they are scripted. If I'm not at the table yet, I might then build that into the rhythm is gonna be like this and then you'll say. So they have a better sense of the space that they should be waiting for the idea of carrying out uh, an activity or having the world around them affect them. Vocal reactions or vocal exertion sounds from the voice actors also help them get deeper into the world and their character and can be a little bit of a stopgap to keep them from moving forward on things uh, in that way too. It's another awesome. way of also building an environment for the audience to be jealous they don't actually get to see, which can be a fun thing uh, design wise. Right. I had something else. Oh, the tricky thing is also um, the negotiation that has to happen between designer and director because I might have an idea for the interpretation of a scene and how a, a voice actor is approaching it that would dictate a different soundscape which is another one of the reasons why it's so important for me to hear their interpretation of the scene early on so I know the difference between when they're shutting a door gently or slamming it when they're walking through a room or when they're stomping or running through a room these things can make uh, very different uh, interpretations of the story and if we're not telling the same story, that's a problem. Right. But yeah. That stuff I, has to come through the director. So there's absolutely. a risk that I might be overstepping my, my bounds. And so I want to make sure that I am having that conversation through the proper channels to be respectful to all of the, our collaborators. For sure. And I, I've been in a live show where the actors stop and look at each other because they know there's supposed to be a sound effect. And it's like the worst thing because the audience knows something's wrong, but they don't know what it is. If they move forward, they could catch up with that kind of thing as well for that same reason. Quickly, a shout out to Steve Schneider because we are in sort of the Q&A section. We talk conversation just zip by. Retakes are unnecessary if people will direct their actors live in person or remotely instead of soliciting three random takes and hoping for the best. This is the single best biggest thing people can do to dramatically improve their shows sure it takes time and, and scheduling but it yields a significantly better result every single time there's no guesswork needed if you hear the performance in real time and direct accordingly direct your actors folks that is his advice some people would say the exact opposite i know but that goes back to like the guthrie versus the gilgood style of directing wouldn't you say you know tyra but i want to move back quickly to john how much sound effects are too much sound effects and Daniel French has his hand raised and I'll get to you in a moment. I'll also put up the pictures. I am listening. Please don't assume that I'm not. Uh, John, how, do, you, do, you, do you ever come to the point you like you put too much in and you went, I can't really understand what's going on. I got to thin it back a little bit. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a certain point where it's just that the sound is mud. <laughs> you know, 
it's just it's a big mess. So I, I think early on, I, I used to do that. I mean, we did a, an adaptation. Uh, it was basically like a, uh, it was War of the Worlds, but it was kind of like a, uh, a found footage type of adaptation of War of the Worlds years ago. And um, so it was, it was the perspective of this young lady uh, between news reports that, uh, you know, was, uh, she had got a new cell phone. So she was recording everything and all of a sudden the aliens attack the martians come and so she's still recording everything with her phone and how realistic that would actually happen that way who knows but that's the approach we took but um there was a scene where they attacked and um i was using a lot of exotic sound design for the aliens and the, and the ships they came in or the tripods and, and um i was very influenced by Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. I, the sound design in Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds is nightmare-inducing. Even if you don't like the movie, you don't like Tom Cruise, just listen to the sound in that thing. Absolutely. Surround sound system uh, with a subwoofer pumping, and it'll scare the crap out of you. Um, so I was kind of shooting for something like that. And uh, there was one scene where they attack, and and... I went a little overboard. So I had to I kind of dial it back a little bit. And I'm like, people are not going to know what the hell's going on here if I don't dial it back a little bit here. So um, yeah, yeah, it happens. You got you to gotta just make sure that, you know, at a certain point, if people can't identify what, what this sound is or what that sound is, uh, there's explosions going off. You got you to gotta dial it back a little bit. Um, so that's definitely a problem. Uh, you have to be aware of uh, the mix. Very cool. And by the way, love that show. I love all your shows, but that's one of my favorites. I think you did a fantastic job with that. Lothar, how much is too much? Um, well, I really like what you know John said about mud because it's very similar to remember when you're first you know getting your first painting classes in grammar school or whatever, and you start mixing paints together. And at a certain point, you realize that you add too many paints together and you get that weird purpley brown that you can't do anything with. Same thing happens with sound and it's different each time because the frequencies are different. So it's a lot of trial and error. I'll usually push the boundaries and say, I wanna do this and this and this and this. And then I go, I can only do this and this. Because when I listen to it, it's all getting lost. That's a waste. But that's that's the way that you find out where the boundaries are and doing that good listen, you just take, take it out, dial it back, realize that, try something again later. Um, keeping them as isolated as possible. So if you have a sound bed and you have sound effects working on that sound bed, you need to find the right places to put it so they're not canceling each other out in some way or doing something that way. And then that comes into the timing as well. There's been times where I've really wanted that extra sound effect to really come in and have a play, but it's being obscured by parts of the, the sound bed that I also want there. So I'll use an envelope tool, lower the volume of the sound bed, bring in that key sound effect and maybe another sound effect because to, to mask the fact that I've lowered the volume on the sound bed and then bring it back up again. And so you can kind of do funny things like that to, to mask it and say, and now I want to show this and now I want to show that. And now we've got everything again. Very cool. Ellie, is there too much times when it's, or are, are there times when it's too much for a live sound effects person or live Foley person that when they're distracting away from the story and how would you know? Uh, it's one of those things that you get more familiar with uh, through experience, I think, first and foremost. Um, 
I'm going to reiterate that we're all magpies. Uh, we benefit most from uh, exposing ourselves to continued examples of the discipline that we're passionate about so we can steal the shiny stuff and line our own nest with it. So you'll see what works and see what doesn't work. And I often learn just as much from what doesn't work, maybe even more uh, than what I do think works. Like, uh, I think I'm a more um, expressive and I mean, we know I have no chill, but I think I'm better expre at expressing what I don't like than what I do like sometimes. Uh, but uh, you can run into a lot of the same traps with uh, design, especially if you're a newer designer. Um, it might be generational, but I do think a lot of younger designers are uh, uh, starting in audio drama, trying to make everything as cinematic as the movies that they uh, grew up watching. And it's just such a different way of pinpointing where the narrative is that a rich soundscape may not necessarily be a functional or supportive soundscape. And so like, if you can't see what's going on, if it's not discussed in the dialogue or if it's not like uh, got an obvious through line, it might also be like mi uh, misconstruing something as important to your audience. Just because you can have a sound somewhere that would be applicable in that environment doesn't mean that you should. Right. Um, and, and, and I, one of the things that can get muddy easily is violence in stage, which is one of the reasons why I think those exertion and reaction sounds from your voice actors are so important. Because if you have the exertion of the attacker, the impact or uh, breaking sound of what a, whatever it is that they're doing, and then the reaction sound from the victim, I think that makes a much clearer storytelling. But it can be a really tricky thing to finesse with your uh, talent because of show adrenaline that's one of the reasons why those are always the elements that i will try to run pre-show with them much like you would a fight call in a traditionally staged show i never thought of show adrenaline being an effective aspect or a detraction that could happen in your show as well that's a great point thank you so much this kind of enters into the whole you know what kind of producer are you are you a minimalist of as, as little as sound as possible and and there's nothing wrong with that i i know greg taylor built an entire you know brand based upon telling the story in a very constrained place keeping the sound effects to a minimum and dropping a show a new show every other week because he's done that to the every blade of grass sound effect group where you want to feel the whole thing you want to feel the wind on your on your the hairs of your skin as you're going along through the show these are things that you learn and you decide what kind of person you want to fall into and it does come back to newer people more interested in cinemagraphic stuff uh older people coming to it were inspired maybe by the more old-time radio style of things and a mixture of the two or even people who were theater people saying i want to have a sound like it is on theater i know jerry robbins from colonial radio theater said look this is odd radio theater I expect it to sound like it is on a soundstage. I'm not expecting it to sound like a studio. That is his style and his sound, and that's how it works. We're running out of time, sadly, but we have five minutes. And in that five minutes, I want to hear from everybody your best advice for, and make it a couple of points, for breaking it down to make it easier for you as a, as a producer or a post-producer or somebody involved in, in doing it on stage and sound effects. And the biggest traps, the things you should avoid the most from doing that. So pe give people some quick advice for those people just starting out. Let's start with Lothar at the top of my screen. The 
I will speak specifically to the every blade of grass because that is the camp that I have normally been in. But I think it's a bit of a misnomer, even though I use it too, but I'm starting to realize the more I do it that what we're really not doing is, and this is best practices and also what to avoid at the same time. Keep in mind exactly what you're going for. We're not doing photorealism because that's not fun. We don't wanna hear the, the toilet burbling and this and that, unless there's a reason for it in the story. If it's not fitting your aesthetics, it, which should be serving the story, which is driven by the plot and the character and all the ways those go in, so should your soundscape. If your soundscape is not serving that, don't add the stuff in. If you want a rich soundscape, make sure it fits the style for the story. You can do it. You don't have to go minimalist for that if you like doing a rich soundscape, but you're gonna maximize what's in there differently. And you might have quieter scenes than louder scenes and that'll have a more distinct contrast because of that. So be aware of it. Don't try and emulate reality, emulate the dream that you want your art to be. No, I agree. And I think that's a beautiful point. And, and as always, you like to take something that is a, can often be seen as sort of um, uh, uh, universal and try to add nuance into that for sure. Ellie, what do you think are your, your the most important things for people to know and the, and the traps to avoid? Um, I think stay curious is always my biggest uh, recommendation to any artist because uh, when, when we're writing, we're always told, write what you know. And when I was uh, very young and naive, I thought that was uh, a limiting bit of advice. I was like, I don't know anything. I don't want to just have to write what I know. But it is a call to action to, in, to invest in learning, to invest in knowledge, because those different rabbit holes will tell you what you're inspired in and what you will learn more about. And that'll make you a bigger and deeper storyteller. Uh, I 100% endorse everything that Lothar was saying. Um, I think our, uh, our executions are different, but our ambitions are very similar. Um, and I'd also refer anyone from, that is curious about production elements or ideas to the documentation that I put in the resources drop uh, Google Drive from yesterday's uh, one of yesterday's sessions that uh, walks you through templates that I use for uh, design breakdown when I'm first reading a script of itemizing the sounds and the execution for those sounds and how to have an efficient uh, communication with your director and or playwright and use that as a jumping off point for uh, doing the design notation slash choreography in a live script and then taking those two elements and using those to give you a pre-show checklist that you can be looking at and furiously uh, making sure that you've got everything where you need it for so you're not at the mercy of that show adrenaline. My personal idea when it comes to rehearsal and uh, pre-show preparation is to make sure that I don't have, I, I have as little thinking as possible I need to do about the nitty gritty things of is the metronome set at the right, uh, tempo to give me a satisfying grandfather clock sound and things like that. So if, when I'm actually performing, it's just about doing the dance. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. And last word goes to John. What do you think are the things that you learned from uh, throughout your years of doing this that people should avoid and the things that they should do first and foremost, breaking this all down? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of like, like newcomers that, um, start off with the idea they're going to do a 15 episode epic uh cinematic spectacular and they've never done any 
anything before. You know, this is maybe the first time major pro project they've ever written or produced or and my advice is, is start off small, you know, maybe just do a one-off little story and um, bring in your people, be willing to collaborate with other folks and take their input, you know, especially if they're people that voice actors or, or creative folks that have done this before, you know, be willing to, you know, if you don't collaborate, uh, that's and just go off your own ideas. It's just creative incest. And, it, you know, the babies that are going to come out of that may be mangled. So you want to be able to collaborate with folks um, that have experience or more experience and also um, be willing to absolutely follow through when you, when you have people come through into your production. You know, the voice actors, they want to hear the final product. So don't, you know, stop halfway and say, ah, this doesn't work. You know, I need to change this. You need to be able to follow through. And it's a lot easier to do that if you have a one-off type of production that's not so ambitious. Yeah, you know, start small and, and move your way up as you gain experience. Thank you so much. This has been really informative. And I, I, I just respect everybody here on the panel so much and so many of the people waiting in the wings. I'm so looking forward to seeing you guys, hopefully all next year too, face to face and being able to use and, and, and witness this because we will have live shows as well involved. I hope people got a chance to look at some of the pictures of my father's little masterpiece I did of, of the magic box I put it there. And uh, I will see everybody here. I mean, my, thank you so much, everyone who's been involved. Uh, we have to move on and please join myself and Lothar is back again. We're doing double duty Lothar or triple duty in some cases for you. Uh, and Paul Walsh will be back here talking about structuring your production world, a little more detail into that. Thank you so much, everyone. I hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks, guys. It, the time just flew by. Totally. It really did. <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. We invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama. Or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the Matinee, and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.